Before the reader comes up, I just wanted to make a couple of mentions about our passage. Uh, First of all, if this is your first time here since I've come here, it's the third passage looking at idolatry. And this one has a particular focus. Uh, There's this word yasar in in Hebrew, and I have it uh, written up there. And this word yasar is translated in many different ways, but essentially it means to form. So Terry was talking about how God continues to form us, and this is something that we see time and time again. It's repeated eight different times, but it's translated differently, so this is something that we can pay attention to. Our passage says it fashions, it shapes, it forges, it makes, and in other translations it says that there's to scrape or to pattern or even to intervene, that God's forming us is an intervening in Israel and our own lives. Uh, One more thing I want to point out from our passage is that it's a little bit longer, and there's three sections that I want us to pay attention to. The first section is verses 6 through 8. This is in Isaiah 44. And this one looks at God as king and redeemer. The second part is looking at the emptiness of the idols. And this is the longer section, and it's a bit of satire. So Isaiah is almost having a little bit of fun with it, and I invite you to look at how playful he is with his language. And that goes all the way from verse 9 to verse 20. And then verse 21 through 23, God invites them to remember, to remember that he is redeemer and king. So with that, I'll invite the the reader to come forward. Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 23. The Lord, not idols. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they measure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol, which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. 
the carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles the fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my God. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat, and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you, you are my servant. O Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all your trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. The word of the Lord. I just wanted to read a couple of those verses again because they're just such interesting ways of putting it. Uh, starting at verse 14, we have this person, he's, he's cutting down cedars or perhaps a cypress or an oak. He lets it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. So he doesn't even make it grow. It's a man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes to warm himself. He kindles fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares a meal. He roasts his meat and he eats his fill. He also warms himself and he says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest of it he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing, they understand nothing, their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one has knowledge or stops to think. 
Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over the coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes and a deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is this thing in my right hand not a lie? So, when I was in Vancouver, I thought I'd take a couple new hobbies on for a try, and one of them was pottery. My dad was interested in pottery. He was in art stuff in the past, so we had access to a wheel, and I would sit down, and one of the things that you have to do, for those of us that aren't familiar with pottery, you have to knead the clay, and that's similar to the kneading of bread, except for bread, you want to create air pockets and whatnot, and with clay, you want to kind of take them all out, and you want to make it real soft and consistent. And then you've got to center it on the wheel that's spinning around, and centering it's really important. And to do that, I would always need to have water beside so that it doesn't stick to my hands too much. And if you do a, a really good job in kneading it out to make it really consistent, and you're skilled at forming it, you can just draw up the shape of the pot as you want it, but if you're about as skilled as I am, it doesn't quite work out that way. You notice these little imperfections. You notice these things that kind of go wrong with it, and you think, well, maybe I can work these out, and you try to add more water, and eventually the thing will just fall apart on you, and you have to pick it all up and and knead it all over again. And if you keep on doing this, it will get wetter and wetter and just harder to work with. And this is a bit of an image of what we have here, of the forming of the people. So this is where Israel is now. God had initially formed humanity. So in, in the creation narrative, looking at Genesis, that same word, Yasar, God creates and he forms all of creation. Then later in Genesis 2, he, he takes man from the clay and he forms that and he breathes life into that and that gets distorted, there's there's sin and then God forms a new person of Israel and he even says in the passages, so we just read verses 6 through 23 in verses 2 and in verse 24, so bookmarking our passage There's this note that God has formed Israel in the womb, that God was reforming a new person. Yet, in the time of Isaiah, this this new person that was being formed had turned away from God and turned from the things that, um, or turned to the things that they themselves were forming. Yet God still intervenes to form them anew. Only now it takes kind of this this pain in reshaping. They are the ones now being flattened and reshaped or reformed. Uh, The title for the sermon has to do with being reformed and I realize that being a, a Christian reformed church that this could be misunderstood and it's not to be understood as the play on words, it's only the reforming that we have. There's this three sections 
in the passage that I alluded to, and those were going to form the three ways that I'm going to tackle it. So first, we're going to look at these verses 6 through 8, and this shows God as Redeemer and God as King. First, looking at God as Redeemer. God is the one that redeems. He invites them to remember all of the things that he has already done for them. This is a historical fact. God is the one that redeems. He has done this time and time again from Egypt to their time in the wilderness to entering into the promised land and to have their kings and the judges. Time and time again, God shows himself as the redeemer for his people. And now, once again, at this time, the time that Isaiah is writing this, this is at a time near the end of the kings of Israel. This is right before Israel is taken into captivity. The northern kingdom has already been taken out to the Babylon, and now they are waiting their judgment. God is sending another nation, the Assyrian and Babylonian Empire, and they're going to take these people in exile. And this judgment is because they have turned from God. They have chosen time and time again to choose to work apart from God, and they had ignored the reminders to turn back from him, and now God was reminding them of what he had promised them. And even in the midst of this, God promises to redeem them. Even though there are people that haven't upheld God's teaching and they've tried to make their own things to try to complete themselves, God says that he is going to redeem them, that he has redeemed them. Like a potter at a wheel, God is saying, I'm, I'm flatten you out and now I will reshapen you. I will form you new again. And this is the image of redeeming. It's not only restoring what was there before, but it is creating something new. It's reshaping for a new context. So that's the image of God as redeemer. There's also the image of God as ruler and as king. And this is the God of king that continues to work with his people. This is a God who calls the people to follow in his righteous rule. So when he saves the people from Israel, it's after he saves them, he says, this is the way to live and to show that I am a good and gracious God. And this way of being king is how he demonstrates this rule. It ensures that the people are in good hands, that under the hands of the creating God that they can show that they are under this good rule. And God challenges his people to think with both of these things in mind. Is there another God like this God? One that redeems his people and continues to be their king so that they may demonstrate this rule? And the response in this section is that there is no other God like him. And this isn't because Isaiah can't think of any other gods. There's surely many other gods in the ancient Near Eastern world. And you look at their neighboring nations. They have 
gods like Marduk or Baal, or they have ones like Mammon. And it's not that he can't think of these things, but he is saying that effectively these gods are not even worth mentioning. His point is that there is no god like God. No other god is king like their god, and no other god redeems like their god. And I think this offers a point of reflection on its own. First, there should be some familiarity with Israel's story. Because we too, as the church, are a chosen people to be in God's image. But we too have a tendency in our lives to turn away. And we stand in need of redemption. We need to be formed and renewed by God. And God is able to do this. He takes us in the middle of our messiness and he can work this clay into something that is strong and something beautiful. This passage is a reminder that God, the one who has formed us, can continue to form and reform us. A second reflection is with the other title, with God as King, is that we too are called to respond to faithfulness to God's redemption and live in a life that's pleasing to God, that we earnestly seek to show the good rule of God to those around us. In the next part of the passage, so looking at the emptiness of the idols, the second part, it shows that our hearts are often pretty good at forging their own shapes. We seek things that we make with our own hands to be our gods, and we can do this with our hearts. And for the visual learners, I drew an image that I think might help. It's a little hazy. I used a a heart guy from a, a cartoon online. And verse 20 in our passage states, A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself. And and the image that I had is is a bit of a reflection on a, a quote from John Calvin. He calls our hearts idle factories, that, that they're these, these forgers, that they continually to forge and create other things for meaning, and they often take the shape of themselves. They take the things they desire and, and they put their hope into that thing rather than the creator himself. It's a sad corruption of the thing that's desired. So rather than using that thing that we desire to glorify God, the heart will often confuse that with the thing that will bring salvation itself. Now here, Isaiah does this long description of idols. The people that make them and their utter foolishness in it. These people have been formed and they try to be formers themselves. And this is the formers of their own brokenness. So they recognize that they're broken. They recognize that they need something more than what is inside. And they try to mend it, but not by seeking the great creator or the great former, but in trying to make things themselves. 
Maybe if they make something in their own strength, they can smooth out their brokenness and their own emptiness. Yet, as Isaiah points out, when they ask these things to save them, their eyes are plastered over in verse 18. So they cannot see, their minds are closed, so they cannot understand. Nobody stops to think. No one has knowledge to understand and say, half of it I used for fuel, the other half I made an idol of it. And the, the challenge here comes in that, that nobody is stopping to think, that, that often we're unreflective of how we live these things out in our lives, that we have to name these things as lies, that whatever we create, whatever we try to use to make us complete is unable to completely reform us and to completely make us whole. An example of how our hearts can form idols from basically almost anything uh, can be found in the idea that theology itself can become an idol. Uh, For myself, this is especially easy to understand when you're in graduate school and you're living basically in a library and you're writing all these papers about God and you can kind of get consumed with this. In the process, you can look at all these different opinions and you can call some of them right and some of them wrong. And if you continue in this way unchecked, then these opinions can become idolatrous. I think that that this particular way of thinking might save me rather than God. I can get caught up in having the right idea of God that I forget the relationship that runs behind it. I can get caught making sure that I have these right categories of thinking and I forget that these aren't simply categories but that I should be living these things out. And I can get so focused between right and wrong that I can forget to be a person that is to be known in the way that I love others. And it's not that my idea or my opinion saves me. It's not the things that I form, whether with my hands or inside. These are not the things that save me. But it is God that forms and God saves And our passage points out the futility in counting on the things that we make. As if we sometimes say, this right way of thinking that I have formed will save me. That this will make me be more complete. And the passage points out that the things we make do not save. Our dependence is on the Redeemer and the King, the one who saves with that, I want to look at the third part, where God calls us to remember. This is the God <clears throat> that is the Redeemer and King, the active ruler over Israel. And the passage leaves us in verse 21, remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you, I have formed you, You are my servant, I will not forget you. And after this reminder that we have the things that we make are completely useless, 
The call from God is to remember, I have formed you. And this gives reason for praise. This means that we don't have to depend on the things that we make and that we create. If we are left on our own devices, we can make these things that we worship. We can make these physical things hoping that they'll help us. Our hearts can forge things inwardly as we try to turn towards them to help, but ultimately these things are worthless. They can give temporary relief. They can give distraction. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, the the things can't save us. And And if this is true, that we are unable to save ourselves, then God's salvation is something worth singing about. It is the cause for all of creation to rejoice. There's this promised redemption of all things from their brokenness being redeemed. And this is the appeal for us with the reminder that God is our redeemer. We remember that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that we are redeemed. We can see that we have turned from him at different points, but he does not leave us on our own. We are not left to our own devices. It's not up to what we are able to do with our own hands. And what can be said of Israel in verse 22 can be said of us. God says to Israel, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And this this sweeping away, the sweeping away is the same word that's used for wiping out words from a scroll. It's eliminating stains or canceling entries completely. That your sins have been completely swept away. And the next part of the passage is about a cloud disappearing. And we might not get this as much out here in Canada, but when you're in the Middle East, in the morning, there's this fog or this mist that is over the land. And as the sun comes up, it's really hot and it evaporates. It just, the, the cloud disappears into nothing. And that's the image that Isaiah has for our sins. That they're like this cloud in the morning that when the sun comes up, they disappear completely without a trace. And as dramatically and as effectively as that, God can remove Israel's wrongdoings. So in the midst of our waywardness, God calls us to him. Like a cloud disappearing, our sins are completely gone. And the amazing part here is that God asks for us to turn to him after he has redeemed us. It's a reminder of how God works. It's not based off of our merits. It's not from the things that we do. It's God's work. You are redeemed. Your stains have been removed. So return to me. And the second thing is that God is king. And we remember this in Jesus' ascension. So not only did Jesus 
die and, and rise again and forgive our sins. But Jesus also rose to the heavens and he sits there on throne as king. And this means that we too have a king that we serve. We have someone's perfect rule that we live in the midst of. This perfect rule of Christ may have its challenges to live in the midst of today. And like the forming from clay that we started with, it might not always be a simple or an easy thing, that this is a process, and this is something that we live with in our whole lives. We have brokenness still. We are constantly being formed and reformed. This is not an easy or short process, but it is one that is done with the help of Christ and through the Spirit. So as we go from here today, may you be reminded and assured that in Christ we have redemption, that our sins and our offenses are taken and they disappear like a cloud, like the morning mist. And remember that Christ reigns in heaven, that we are his people here, and that through the work of the Spirit, we can carry out the work of the kingdom with Christ as King. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you that you redeem and that you are King. Sometimes we are all too aware of our imperfections, of our need to be reworked and reformed. Forgive us for our attempts in trying to do this on our own. Thank you for the forgiveness that you offer, that you are the God that calls us to return to you. May we do this readily, recognizing that it is in the midst of grace that we may turn to you. Amen.